0: The sun is shining. The birds are singing. The streets are silent. This is Britain in lockdown. Around the country, empty GP waiting rooms echo with the sound of silence. This is general practice in lockdown. It's Friday, the 27th of March, and this is the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for listening once again. My name is Neil Tucker and I'll be walking you through the next 20 or so minutes. This is, of course, another coronavirus special. There's so much information to try and keep up with that I thought we just need to keep focusing on this right now. This is the centre of all of our lives. The forefront of our minds. And you may be like me, waking up at four o'clock in the morning every day for the last two weeks, just thinking, what's next? What's new? What are we going to have to do at work today? What do we need to know? What are the new things we can learn? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a look, firstly, at what we've learned about coronavirus in the last week. And then, secondly, we're going to have a focus on the way it presents the clinical features that we might expect in primary care. And understanding this is increasingly important now as we shift from preparation to action, as we start to see more cases and start to have to try and manage them in the community. Just before we do that, I wanted to say a big, big thank you to everyone who's contacted the MB Medical team and myself over the last week. It still seems a bit of an odd concept to me that I'm just sitting in a room in my house talking into a microphone and that people at some point might choose to listen. And normally we get very little feedback about what people think about the podcast and um, whether they find it useful and enjoyable but i think that over the last couple of weeks clearly with a level of anxiety that we're all feeling about what's coming with coronavirus or indeed what's here now lots of you seem to have found it helpful so um, i've found it really helpful having some of your messages well so thank you so much for sending them in i'm really sorry if i haven't had the time it's been a really crazy week i'm sure it has been for everyone but i haven't had the time to reply to you personally and we will keep on sharing the best possible information that we can find Sharing our experiences from different areas around the country and around the world, and together we will get through this. So, what have we learned this week? I've learned that if I want to have a look at all the little videos people have WhatsApped to me in the last seven days, I'm gonna actually have to take time off of work. We've learned that the public really do appreciate what we and all healthcare workers are doing in the UK and around the world. And for so many people to stand outside last night in the streets up and down the country, showing their thanks with just a simple gesture, it had a profound effect on many of us. This week we learned more about testing. So huge area of frustration for us having the inability to test for coronavirus, both in our patients and in ourselves and our colleagues. And As more and more of us have to self-isolate for prolonged periods, the need for testing healthcare workers just goes up and up and up. There may be some light at the end of the tunnel, so various areas around the UK now have managed to increase their capacity for testing and are starting to test healthcare workers or their household members who have become unwell. So it shouldn't be long before we and our colleagues get a better idea about what is the cause of an illness when we are unwell. However, the ability to test more broadly within the community is still some distance away. That's not likely to happen until at least the middle of April, possibly longer. And That is a cause of some concern because we've learned the lessons from other countries. We can see that China, assuming the figures can be believed... They have now got no more terrestrial cases of coronavirus. They have completely suppressed the outbreak in just the space of three months. And Of course, there was widespread reporting about the degree of lockdown and the restrictions on travel within China. But actually, the assistant director general for the World Health Organization explains that those were not the measures that stopped transmission in China. It's not the big travel restrictions, it's not the lockdowns. To actually stop the virus, they had to do rapid testing of any case, immediate isolation of anyone who was a confirmed or suspected case, and then quarantine the close contacts for 14 days so they could figure out if any of those were infected as well. And so, those are the measures that we need to be doing if we really want to try and drive this down as fast as possible. It comes back to really good public health work, identifying cases, tracing the contacts and stopping it in its tracks. Yes, the lockdown that we've got in the UK at the moment should have a significant effect on the rates of transmission, but it is not the complete solution. What else did we learn this week? We learned about the limitations of modelling pandemics. Everyone wants to know how long this is going to go on. Everyone wants to know how severe this is going to be. The scientists who are modeling the data are desperately trying to provide those answers. And yet, it's become apparent that there are significant limitations here because we have a number of different models, all of which are providing different answers. So, currently, it's being reported that there's going to be the peak in three weeks intuitively that seems to be a very reasonable assumption we've been in lockdown for a week coronavirus has a 2 week incubation period then household members if they're going to get infected could have another 2 weeks before they potentially show any symptoms but by that point we should have already reached the peak then those patients if they do need some kind of critical care they may spend another week to 2 weeks on on a ventilator so you would hope that by about 6 weeks from now we should be in a fairly reasonable position and things should be dying down and yet there are other models that suggest that the peak is going to hit in early to mid may and there is another model that suggests the peak will be at late may so i think the only lesson that we can really learn from this is that we need to prepare prepare early I'm mindful of something that Anthony Fauci, who is an immunologist in the States, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases there. He's been doing a number of really, really helpful interviews, particularly on JAMA. Um, It's well worth having a a listen to the podcast that they do and the video stream that they do. And he was saying that you do want to feel like you are overprepared because wherever you are at the moment, you are probably behind where you think you are, and the pandemic is ahead of you. So forget the models. Let's just be as prepared as we can. Let's be flexible. We need the ability to adapt. We just have to take it week by week. And there is substantial variation around the country. If you're in London right now, then your GP practices may be feeling the burden already. Where I am in Oxford, we're meant to be a few days behind and we're definitely talking to lots of patients who clearly have coronavirus, but the hospitals are so far managing okay. The system is not open overwhelmed and in other parts of the country they're meant to be weeks behind so we might see this kind of wave spreading out across the UK but there is hope that the measures the government have taken that the social distancing the lockdowns may actually help that wave just die down out at sea rather than crashing onto our shores we are already learning that there are many challenges that we are going to face and that they will come at us from all angles Part of the challenge for us is the lack of central leadership in larger organisations. I know that some practices have been trying to form within their PCNs COVID hubs for people to see, community hospitals to help facilitate transfer of non-COVID patients out of hospital so that we can help them recuperate within the community. And All of this is absolutely admirable. It's fantastic that we're thinking like this, but it's also madness for PCNs to be trying to manage a pandemic. At the very least, it needs to be done at a locality level, such as a CCG. And I know that lots of local areas are now starting to publish their Guidance on how to assess and manage COVID patients within primary care. And so far, from everything I've seen, there's a lot of variation in those guidelines. And in particular, and this will be a particular concern to us and a particular concern to our patients, there's a lot of difference in the recommendations about who shouldn't be sent to hospital so they won't be admitted, so they won't be put on a ventilator. And there's a rationale for why some groups will do very badly. We know that the very elderly do very poorly on ventilators. They spend a long time in ICU and the mortality rate remains really high. But the last thing we need is a postcode lottery for life. So it's shameful that there's not been more top-down guidance from national public health and NHS bodies. We're all trying our hardest in practices, but we can't do this alone. Yesterday at work, we started seeing shortages in asthma medications. So the local pharmacies have run out of stock of Clenil and Qvar uncertainty about when they're going to be able to get that stock back in, asking for us to prescribe alternatives. Clearly quite worrying. We don't want people having to change their asthma medication right now. and Also it's hard for us to know what are the alternatives. We don't use them very much, So I had a look at our local guidance and the alternative to Clenol they recommend is cyclesinide. This is a drug I don't think I've ever seen prescribed before, but it did prompt me to look at a very useful resource, which is rightbreathe.com. So I know we've talked about this on the course before. I may have talked about it on the podcast um, months and months ago, it's a site that's been set up by a number of pharmacists and GPs in London, and it details every single inhaler that's available in the UK at the moment. It gives you indications, dosages, inhaler technique. And so, if you are in a position where you're struggling to think of another inhaler, if the pharmacy have not suggested an alternative, then writebreathe.com. Now, after last week's social media storm regarding medications that could be potentially damaging in COVID 19 infection, this week has been surprisingly calm, but there's still a lot of interest in hydroxychloroquine, and we've had a few people email in asking questions about this. So last weekend there was a very important paper that was published. It was a French study conducted in Marseille looking to build on the suggestion that had come out of Chinese data that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine may have some effect to help clear SARS-CoV-2 from the body. Now this was not a randomized control trial. It was not a large trial either. There were 36 participants. Further six were lost to follow up. 20 of those participants had the active treatment, which was hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams three times a day for 10 days. And then within that group, six of them also received azithromycin for presumed secondary bacterial infection. They were looking at clearance of the virus from the body at day six. They did this by using PCR nasopharyngeal swabs and looking for a previously positive test that then turned negative. And at day 6 they found that 12.5% of the control group were clear of the virus, 57% of the hydroxychloroquine group were clear of the virus, and 100% of those who were on hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin were clear, suggesting some kind of synergistic response between both of those agents. So the authors of the paper very reasonably wanted to get this out as fast as possible, even though the sample size was underpowered to provide really conclusive results. There is an excellent review of this paper and the other data around hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19 treatment to be found on the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine's website. So it's from the University of Oxford It's open access and there's lots of other information that they're trying to synthesise from all the data that's being constantly produced around COVID-19. It's well worth just keeping in touch with that website, so www.cebm.net. The review does highlight some of the limitations of this paper. So Six patients were lost to follow-up. That's quite a large percentage when you're only looking at a study of 36 patients. It's not a blinded or randomised controlled trial. There is potential for bias. And it highlights issues such as side effects and contraindications of these medications. So should we all go on hydroxychloroquine prophylactically? No, I don't think so. We can't say that yet. Could it be of use in very unwell patients? That is very possible, What we really need is stronger data and more research. There's obviously time pressures here, but there are already 20 registered trials looking into this very topic at the moment. So I think very rapidly, we're going to start building a clearer picture about the potential role for hydroxychloroquine in the management of this pandemic. Okay, so let's move on to talking about how coronavirus presents in the community. It's worth just recapping the fundamentals of what we know about coronavirus. And this has changed over the last few days as well. So the incubation period is about five days, but could be anywhere from two to 14. We know that people often become more unwell about day seven or eight. And that's when people might experience an increase in their breathlessness that drives them to hospital. We know that viral shedding happens for an average of 20 days, but the longest reported is 37. We know that that tail end of viral shedding doesn't necessarily indicate infectivity. However, a new paper out of China demonstrates the Peak level of viral shedding on throat swabs happens on the day that symptoms start. And so they estimate that, in fact, up to 44% of the infectivity may happen pre symptom development, probably one or two days before. We know that diarrhea may happen in about one in 10 patients. And actually, diarrhea may also be a prodrome to more common coronavirus symptoms developing. We know that choriza is meant to be an uncommon feature, seen in only 5% of cases, but clearly its presence doesn't exclude coronavirus. We know that conjunctivitis happens in about 1% of cases, so it's uncommon, but it seems to confer a very poor outcome. We know that people present with fever, malaise, myalgia, that they might have a cough, typically dry. And breathlessness, which increases over the course of a week. But almost exclusively, all this information comes from patients who have been admitted to hospital. And there's now reports and data on the significant variability of how this disease presents, both within regions and then within local populations. So, a month ago, a BMJ paper published that was from a group in China outside of Wuhan. and These were hospitalised patients, but even then they found that only 77% of them exhibited fever. Only 81% of them had a cough. About half of them had expectoration. A third had headache, myalgia and fatigue, seen in half, diarrhoea in 8%, and extremely low levels of shortness of breath at the point of admission. They commented that, compared with the findings in Wuhan, this population had a relatively mild disease course. And then, of course, Italy has been hit very hard by coronavirus. The mortality rates are the highest in the world. And there's a lot of speculation about why that is. They do have a very elderly population with significant comorbidities. There has been less community testing and so, of course, that will increase the percentage of the case fatality rate. But also Italian data from the small town of Vaux has suggested that there is a significant asymptomatic carrier rate. The town tested every inhabitant of its 3,000 plus population for coronavirus and found a carrier rate of 3% of which half of that group was asymptomatic. Now there is still some debate around whether asymptomatic carriers may be able to transmit the disease, but of course we do see this in lots of infections, so it's reasonable to presume that they can. So what this tells us is that the case definition, very rigidly adhered to by public health bodies around the UK, is really not fit for purpose. It cannot help guide us in primary care. It will miss perhaps not just many, but in fact maybe the majority of patients who have coronavirus within the community. And This was why there was such a drive in China to test people who had any type of infective symptom, not just those considered common in coronavirus. But right now, we do not have that facility. So what can we do in primary care? So, we've been trying to collate how people present to try and build up a picture of what might be coronavirus. And the reality is, it's going to be tough. I'll give you three quick pictures of three GPs who have almost definitely had coronavirus. We can't be completely certain because none of them have been tested, but there seems little doubt. So, the first is someone you may well know, whether it's from Twitter, the TV, or the Hot Topics courses, Stephanie DiGiorgio. And she's been in isolation for the last 12 days due to presumed coronavirus. So, she is still unwell. She's still got a fever at day 12. That has been up and down. There's been periods where it seemed like it has gone and then it has come back 48 hours later. And Along with the fever, she's had general malaise. She's had a bit of a dry cough and just generally feeling a bit unwell. The second GP is a friend of mine's sister. She's in London. She's now probably at day six of her coronavirus infection. Which started with mild dizziness, fatigue, and a bit of diarrhea, then seemed to settle. And then a couple of days later, she had more classic symptoms of fever and breathlessness. So she seems to have this diarrheal prodrome followed by fairly classic symptoms. Then the third example is of another GP, fairly local to me. She was off on a skiing holiday a couple of weeks ago. So, a group of 12 of them, one of them developed a bad cough. Everyone then became unwell at the end of the holiday and. On the day that they were due to go back to work, this GP developed a low-grade fever and a bit of a cough. She felt generally a bit lethargic for 48 hours, and then everything settled. It subsequently transpired that one of them had a test for coronavirus. It was positive, and of course that means that it's highly likely that they've all had coronavirus. So Clearly, there's a very wide variation in how this disease presents in people. This makes it very challenging for us in primary care to try and separate out who might have coronavirus and who does not. That's challenging because we don't know of any certainty who might be safe and who isn't safe to bring down to the practice. And It's becoming very, very clear that we should be avoiding face-to-face consultations wherever possible. If we can make a reasonable assessment on the phone, if we can use video technology to try and improve that assessment, then that is going to be crucial in the next few weeks. Nevertheless, it is hard. I did a video consultation on a patient yesterday who was late 40s, two weeks of a persistent fever, mild cough, not very breathless, but today very, very malaise, really weak, so weak he couldn't get out of bed, could barely move around. Should we be expecting that by day 14 of this illness? Just don't know. It's very unsettling. This was my first COVID assessment by video call and it is helpful. Eyeballing him, he looked all right. His respiratory rate was okay. He took his pulse. He took his temperature for me. We did the Roth test. You might have seen this going around social media this week as well. The Roth test getting people to count from zero to 30 and seeing how far they get and how long it takes them before they have to take a breath. The findings are meant to correlate with people's sats, although as a review in the, from the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine points out, this hasn't been validated in a primary care setting and it's reasonable but it's not that accurate. And ultimately, we could just use our clinical judgment. Nevertheless, he made it all the way up to 29. So, with a slightly high temperature, a normal pulse, normal respiratory rate, and a good score on his Roth test, his OBS should be very reassuring. Nevertheless, I was just left with this sense of uncertainty and disquiet. I called him back an hour and a half later to see how he was doing, and there was unsurprisingly, very little change, but at least his OBS were still maintained. And while I can be fairly certain that my patient does not have sepsis based around his OBS, of course, I don't know that he doesn't have some other serious condition. Perhaps his persistent lack of oral intake has driven a significant electrolyte imbalance, and that explains his weakness. And therein lies the difficulty. We're trying to keep people out of hospital when perhaps we might be tempted to send them in. That's for their own protection, as well as the protection of others. We're trying to avoid... Unnecessary investigation because resources will be stretched. It all gets very, very complicated. So, this is a type of uncertainty that increasingly we will have to manage over the next few weeks. And we will want to try and manage people at home. We don't want to expose the practice, our staffs and ourselves, to people who clearly have coronavirus. We don't want to expose our well patients to people who may have coronavirus. And equally, we don't want to expose people who may not have coronavirus to the disease by them coming into the practice. But ultimately, there's no easy way to do this in this level of uncertainty. There is currently a lack of guidance about we manage presumed COVID cases in primary care because there's no primary care data. So it's reasonable to go back to first principles. Look for red flags. Is their respiratory rate very high? Do they have respiratory distress? Are they tachycardic? Do they have new onset confusion or delirium? Are there clinical features of hypotension? All of these would be indications that someone might need to go to hospital but those who are in the extremes are perhaps the easiest to manage because the decision is very clear. It's those in the intermediate categories about whom we lack information that are going to be the hardest ones for us to manage. And Ultimately, it's going to come back down to using our judgment, using that gut feeling that we've got, understand the patient's home situation and level of support. Think about their comorbidities and drugs that they're taking. How might that affect the outcome? And Safety net, safety net, safety net, and have a low threshold for contacting them again, even if it's only for your own peace of mind. Ultimately, the way forward will be to have a widely available test that we can use for everyone in the community, which gives us rapid answers. And wouldn't it be nice if we could test for other causes as well? I listened to an interview from a top American immunologist the other day and he was saying that of course it might not be coronavirus. It could be influenza, parainfluenza, RSV, a myriad of other respiratory infections. And it's very difficult to separate between them unless you can test All of these tests exist, but we are even further away from being able to access those than we are a widespread coronavirus test. So don't worry. If you've been at work, if you've been finding this hard, if you're struggling with the uncertainty, you are not alone. We are all in the same boat. These are uncertain times. There is a lack of understanding. There is a lack of information. We're all finding our feet as we go along. But every single day, our understanding improves you will understand better today how this disease presents than you did last week. You will understand how this disease evolves better than you did last week. You will understand how you can manage these patients better than you did last week. And as our personal experience grows, it becomes increasingly important that we share that with each other. We need to share the successes. We need to build on them. We need to share the failures and understand what went wrong. So talk to your friends, talk to your colleagues, talk to those in the practice, talk to those in the PCNs, talk to those in the CCG, in the health boards. When there is no data, let's make that data, let's create that understanding. Talk to us here at MB Medical, whether that's through Twitter, through Facebook, or sending us an email through the website, so hottopics at nbmedical.com. Let me know about those successes and failures. I can share it with everyone, and we can all learn how to fight this better. Time is of the essence. Things are already bad in some parts of the country. Let's learn from those areas where experience is accrued. And together we will get through this. We will get through this better and stronger. We will ensure that we're doing the best that we possibly can for our patients, for our staff, for our families, and for ourselves. So I think that's enough for today. All being well, we will be back next week with another podcast. Next week we need to talk about a topic that's on all of our minds. And that's end of life care in the COVID pandemic. When I talked about the Italian experience in general practice last week, one of the big differences is that they don't do as much palliative care as we do. And we're going to start seeing more patients being managed within the community, and that's going to fall on our shoulders. So we're going to talk about that in more detail next week. We'll talk about all the advances that have come out in the medical literature on coronavirus over the last seven days. And in the meantime, look after yourselves, stay safe. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.